It's interesting to go through this season with historical perspective, because this is season four of TNG, which was right about when Star Trek really started to get popular in a way that it just hadn't before, as I've already talked about, which also pretty much directly led to Deep Space Nine. Now, Deep Space Nine would actually not actually come out until uh, uh, season six, I want to say. It's right after Chain of Command, I know that, but I, I forget which, which season that was. It's not for a bit. But we know that they had started thinking about shopping around the, the show right about at this point in history. And we know that they would eventually take several ideas from this point in history and shop, shop them into Deep Space Nine. We'll be seeing more examples of this in the future. But we see an obvious example of this here in The Wounded with the introduction of the Cardassians. Now this is funny. Because not too long ago, I talked about the significance of continuity and how the Borg were helped by the fact that they were introduced before they became a major threat. The Cardassians are the exact opposite of that. They were introduced, and it's like, hey, we just entered a war with them like a year ago. I should look that up. It would have been about midway through Season 3 when the peace treaty was signed, which doesn't quite make sense, actually, because as I've pointed out before over on Deep Space Nine several times... They are incredibly vague when it comes to the exact time during which the Federation and uh, Cardassian Union were actually at war. And they've never bothered to codify that. Across all of Deep Space Nine, which did a whole lot of setting building for Star Trek in general, and the Federation in particular, and the Cardassians in particular, they never actually sat down and said, okay, here was the war, and here's what happened, and here's what kicked it off. And It's just this big ball of vague. We have a general range, but that's about it. But I find that interesting because they actually reference Wolf 359 and the Best of Both Worlds twice in this episode. Once when they say that they just are not ready for another war, which makes sense. And once where Maxwell actually flat out says, oh god, we all owe you one, Riker. I like to think that Riker is personally something of a celebrity in, the, in Starfleet in particular right now. Especially amongst those who get the kind of reports about what happened back at Earth, like just about any Starfleet captain would. So, Anyways... So the Cardassians are introduced, and apparently we've been at war with them for a while. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I mention this, though, because this is kind of the, the turn in storytelling in Star Trek. Now, I've referred to the previous era, up to Wolf 359, as kind of the winds of change, golden era of Starfleet and, Star and uh, Federation in general. But it's worth noting that a lot of that perspective is a little bit more out of character than in character. Because... As we learn, there were no less than three separate conflicts with major other powers during that period of time, none of which really mattered for the actual seasons one, two, and three of Star Trek. There was the conflicts with the Romulans, which is referenced. There's the entire thing with the, I want to say the Zinkethi, which is basically referenced like twice. And then there's the thing with the Cardassians, which isn't even invented until season four. So obviously from an in-universe perspective, it wasn't quite the same thing. But at the same time, you can kind of see how the intent was for it to be that. Again, as I've pointed out before, uh, it's kind of like Pokemon. You can certainly poke holes in Pokemon, but Pokemon is still a setting in which a 10-year-old can leave their home and go out into the wild, and that's fine. Whatever else you can say about that setting, it is clearly a different setting than the one we have here in real life. And it's the same thing with the way they approached the Enterprise in particular, but Starfleet in general. The idea of having a counselor on the bridge of a starship was completely normal. The idea of having family members and regular personnel on board, on board a ship instead of just military operations was considered ex exceptionally un... Ex blah, 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 I can't talk. Was considered exceptionally normal. 
It was mundane, even. It was so, of course we can have that. We're at peace. We're cool. Ignoring the fact that in-universe this isn't quite true, you could kind of see the mentality there. Anyways, I do want to say uh, one quick thing, though. That's a yawn. We could see a lot of how the Federation's treaty before peace thing is continuing to be pushed. And that's especially true in this one. We must maintain the peace treaty at all costs. At least they have a valid reason for it this time. Not just because the Federation doesn't want a war, but because they probably couldn't really wage one right now. In fact, if I was to consider such things, and given who the writing staff is for Season 4, I think this is actually on purpose, it wouldn't surprise me if the Cardassians had started rearming in preparation for a renewed assault on the Federation because of Wolf 359. No, seriously, think about this for a moment. Picture that you're playing any old kind of strategy, 4X, grand strategy, whatever kind of a game, right? And you're, and there is someone who you were at war with in the past, but you're now at peace with, and you're just doing your own pursuits. And then your enemy, through something completely unrelated to you, just gets slammed. You know, something happens, they have a, a famine or a plague, or they lose an entire army, or something huge happens to really curtail their military capacity. Wouldn't it be extremely understandable to be like, huh, and to just try to capitalize on their temporary weakness? Because you know, and, and we've actually already established, that, that, that the Federation, uh, Utopia Planitia, and the Federation Yards in general are cranking out ships over time as of now, as of the end of Best of Both Worlds Part 2. So this, this weakness is a temporary gap. Wouldn't you take advantage of that? Especially given how the Federation tends to think, right? You know... Just charge in, take a bit more territory, and then be like, you know what, why don't we peace out before the Federation can really mount a serious counterattack? Offer them peace, which is what they want anyways, right? And now we've got a few new planets and systems under our control. Grin. I mean, it's so logical. And ba again, based on the episode, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what was happening. As Picard flat out stated, no, Maxwell was actually right. <laughs> Maxwell was correct. This was a rearmament effort. And to be 100% blunt, I actually think that Maxwell actually helped prevent that from happening. No, seriously. I, I state with total certainty that if someone like Maxwell had not come across this information and done something about it, that there is an extremely high chance that there would have been a renewed assault by the Cardassian Union. And it, it wouldn't have been like crush the Federation kind of assault, but they would have assaulted, and they probably would have, like I said, take some systems and then offer peace. It's a very Cardassian thing to do. We will, of course, talk more about the Cardassians, even in TNG in the future, since they're going to continue coming up. But I just want to say really quick that I like that they kept bringing the Cardassians back. I've related the Cardassians to the Klingons more than once, and I do so very much on purpose. I don't mean in terms of culture or species, but from an out-of-character perspective, both species were basically the same thing. A very talented group of writers came together and wrote an excellent episode that happened to include a brand new race never seen before. And it was such an intriguing and interesting race and antagonist that in both cases, they stuck. The Klingons from uh, uh, Day of the Dove, sorry, or Errand of Mercy. I can never remember which one it is, actually. But anyways, TOS and, you know, the Klingon War that nearly started, except for the Organians getting involved, and... TNG and The Wounded. By the way, I love this episode, if that's not obvious. I really like this one. It's an O'Brien episode about the, introducing the Cardassians, and it has long-term political ramifications and is about preventing a war. Of course I like this episode. Anyways. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's very understandable why the Cardassians kept coming back. Several people, uh, they mentioned, 
several of the creators mentioned that they were just entranced with this race, far more so than most of the other you know one-off races. Like the Talarians never come back, right? We just talked about that back in uh, the episode that was a few episodes ago. God, I don't remember the name of it. Hang on, hang on. Let me pull up my calendar here. Because it'll be on here. Uh, no, no, no. It's in season four. God, we're already into March. Oh no, we're past March. We're into we're into May now, aren't we? No, we're into Oh my goodness, this episode's going live in June. Holy moly. Anyways, I'm specifically referring to the episode Suddenly Human, right? The Talarians, okay. We'll never see them again. <laughs> right? Because they weren't interesting. They didn't stick. Nobody was nobody was engaged by them. And I, I point that out. Because you ever notice, I'm sure you have because you're listening to this in 2019 and this is the modern era of the internet, but sometimes something just clicks, right? And I personally, I actually have a term for this, I call it Tetris effect, where something just kind of perfectly Tetrises in your blender. It just fits with you, right? But that's more of a grand concept. This is more of a specific thing. At last BlizzCon, last November, there was a showing of a new uh, character for Overwatch. And it was some woman named Ash. And people were like, yeah, okay, whatever. But then there was this random droid. Uh, I can't remember what they're called right now off the top of my head, but they're not called droids. You know, an artificial life form in the background whose name was Bob. And he had these giant metal, he had this giant metal mutton chop mustache thing going on and a really tiny little hat. And everyone instantly fell in love with Bob. Not anyone else. Just that guy. See, I've noticed that there's this trend in human, in, in fiction most especially, where people just lash onto something and there's not really a definitive reason for it. I mean, you could argue why there is. Like, Waluigi is actually another excellent example of this to also pull from video games. A lot of people just latch on to Waluigi and say, ah, wah, you know, he's awesome, right? And we could argue the whys and the wherefores, and there usually are whys and wherefores to why these characters stick or why these species stick, but it's just a thing. Every now and again, something just sticks more than other things do. It was the same thing with the Borg. It was the same thing with the Klingons. It was the same thing with the Romulans. It's the same thing with the Cardassians. The reason the Cardassians endured were like seven other races I can name if I looked them up, which I don't remember off the top of my head. I mean, how many one-off races have we had to date just in TNG? Several. I, I just named the Telerians. That's just in this season. We have had several, several, several new races in season one, season two, and season three. But how many of them stuck? The Ferengi stuck, but that was more by deliberate effort rather than anyone actually gelling with them. In fact, to be completely blunt, most people didn't really like the Ferengi until Deep Space Nine. Thank you, Armin Shimmerman and uh, Max Grodenchik. And, oh, God, I can never think of his name. The guy who plays Nog, he's awesome. I actually like him a lot as an actor, and I can never think of his name. I'm going to look at it right now. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Nog. Nog is being played by... Oh, my God. Aaron Eisenberg. There we go. Aaron Eisenberg. So I honestly think that a lot of why the Ferengi ended up sticking was because of those three actors. But so many of those other races just didn't stick. Now, as I just implied, there's usually a reasoning behind why one of these things stick. You know, you can actually define it down to something that makes them more engaging. And in this case, there's two big things in my opinion, and the opinion of several other people I've seen interviews on them. First is Michael Westmore. Now, for those of you who don't know who that gentleman is, he's one of the main 
makeup artists behind Star Trek at this point in history. If you've seen an alien designed at about this point in Star Trek's history, there's a pretty good chance Michael Westmore personally designed that alien. The Cardassians are an example of his work. He, he did that. He built the face and the neck thing and all that. And you'll notice that with very few minor changes, this is still the same look that they would use over on Deep Space Nine. It's just it's a little more polished over there since they wanted to use it repeatedly over and over. So they started doing you know, basically putting more effort and work into it. And they got rid of the facial hair. That was probably a good move. And so that's one thing. The Cardassians look cool. The second thing is the fact that the Cardassians were specifically designed to be an enemy that was at Picard's level. They weren't designed to have big, doomy ships, which has been done many, many times in Star Trek. They weren't designed to be, you know, the horribly evil, we will crush you, you you'll be assimilated, or you'll be destroyed, or get out of our territory or die. Instead, they were designed to be intellectual. They were designed to be people who could outthink you, who had the kind of what what would in the old days be referred to as university-level training, right? That they had gone to college and they could come out college-educated and could speak as a college-educated individual. Now, that doesn't really have the kind of weight it used to, but you get the idea. That was the intent. These were supposed to be a race of people who outthought their opponents and still had the same gravity and strength behind their presentation, just like Picard did. This is actually why they brought back uh, Mark Alemo to be the main Cardassian, because they were rather impressed with him as an actor. And, well, let's be honest, Mark Alemo has amazing charisma. He can do that kind of portrayal. He is actually very good at it. This is exactly why he was brought back to be the Cardassian over in Deep Space Nine. Although I have to admit that there's a very, well, let's just say that it has been posited and yet not proven that the reason that he is Gull Dukat instead of Gull Masset, despite being the same actor and the same species in the same general position over on Deep Space Nine as opposed to the Wounded, is the fact that they would have had to pay royalties for him for, for the authors of this episode if they used Gull Dukat in DS9. Now I know what you're thinking, oh that's ridiculous. Tom Paris. Anyways, <clears throat> I personally believe it, but I don't have proof of it, so I can only posit it as a speculative. But anyway, so we've got Mark Alemo, who is an incredibly charismatic actor, a great a design of a species, and we've got Michael Westmore's makeup. And I think those three things really are the big things that kept the Cardassians so interesting. For me personally, although I know this wasn't really the prevalent theory at the time, or, or mentality at the time, I like to think that the Cardassians are so interesting because they provided a political opponent for the Federation. Now, I know what you're saying, well, but they've had that before. Well, not really. I mean, the Romulans do qualify. You know, we got the Cold War thing going on with the Romulans. But the Cardassians were more another major player on the board. I relate again to my earlier parallel with the 4X game, or the Grand Strategy game. They felt like another superpower, someone who had the kind of political, military, industrial, economic strength to actually at least be able to challenge the Federation. Crush it? No, no. This is not the Husnok. But they are a group who could play the game and make it interesting. And I think that's another reason why the Cardassians would endure so much. You'll notice that a lot of Cardassian stories before Deep Space Nine even got started were very political stories, just like this one. Anyways. <clears throat> so, um... Looking at my notes here. <laughs> There's this actually interesting bit where, you know, they say it's, it's been a, almost over a year, or nearly a year, excuse me. The exact wording is nearly a year since the treaty was signed. And Troy says, well, there are allies now. 
Now, what I love about that is that is a very Troy thing to say. And I mean no offense whatsoever to Troy, but Troy does not understand politics or war. That's not her purview. She's the, the, the psychiatrist, the counselor, and the psychologist. You know, she, she gets that kind of thing. In fact, we, we just show this in uh, The Loss. But I get the idea that she's like, well, we're at peace now, so we're cool. Like, right? I mean, I just imagine Troy walking up to a Cardassian and being like, the Cardassian's like, what are you doing? Because that's not actually true. Worf, by contrast, while he is a little more antagonist, nevertheless has the more realistic perspective on it. Trust is earned, not given away. And any power which we have been at war at for some time, again, they're very vague on the dates, but it's a fairly long period of time of the Cardassian slash Federation skirmishes, any power you've been at war with for a significant period of time and then just signed a peace treaty within a year, no, of course there's still, still going to be tensions. Of course there's still, still going to be uncertainty. In fact, to be completely blunt, I'm astonished that the only one who really shows that is O'Brien on the crew. Then again, the Enterprise was off peacenicking in a completely different sector of the galaxy, so I suppose that might be why they never really had to do anything about the Cardassian Union. That's the in-character excuse for why, by the way. You'll notice, by the way, our, our, the arc of the Enterprise is continuing its little slant down towards the Klingon territories that I've mentioned before, because we're now down in the Cardassian area over here. So, there's this nice scene between O'Brien and Keiko, nice follow-up to Data's Day, where she's introducing him to food. Now, my first immediate knee-jerk reaction was, why is he so surprised at this? I mean, they have dated before they decided to get married, right? I mean, I know some cultures and some people think of marriage as just like you know, like exchanging hats rather than some kind of deep, lifelong commitment thing. But, right? But then they actually smoothed it out over by him about flat out saying, look, you've been introducing me to all these dishes that you know and you loved. Maybe I could do the same back. You know, maybe I could show you some of the things I used to like. And I kind of liked that. And again, as ever, the actor who plays O'Brien managed to add some wonderful humanity to his portrayal. I, I love him. I really do. Um, I'm sorry. I, I keep saying the actor who plays O'Brien because I just want to avoid that whole controversy. I really wish I could reach out to the actor who plays O'Brien personally, myself, and say, I'm sorry. I love you. I love your work. How do you pronounce your name? Like, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I was big enough to have that kind of influence, to be able to reach out to a, a star and an actor and say... I would love to ask you this question. You got a minute? <laughs> and then I could be like, all right, he says it's blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to start calling it blah, blah, blah from now on. But no, I have to go off of interviews and, and comments and, and vocal things which, which disagree with each other, which is why I just keep avoiding this statement entirely. Anyway, so <clears throat> this is also an interesting introduction to another idea that D-Space Nine would take and run with it. The difference between cooked food and replicated food. Now, I've given my opinion on that many times over on the D-Space Nine thing, but on the off chance you're not watching the D-Space Nine ruminations, to be clear, I don't think there's much of a real difference between replicated food and cooked food. Now, obviously, replicated food is going to taste different, but the idea that it's worse, I don't buy that for a second. I think that's more of the preference thing and also the nature of cooking versus replicated. Because if you replicate, um, I don't know, this bag of carrots right here, like if I beamed in the, the pattern of these carrots, if I replicated a hundred of these bags, those bags are going to be nigh unto identical, each one of them, right? So they're all going to taste exactly the same, or at least very close to exactly the same. If I go out and grab up some carrots and and slice them down and chop them into the little bits of carrots, then those are going to taste different because of the variables introduced. So it's, def it's definitely true that it would taste different. That's logical. But I think the preference side of it, the saying that replicated food is inherently inferior, I've never bought that. 
And I think that is mostly just because of the very idea of, of real-life preferences. I mean, how many things in real life do you prefer from such and such a brand? Or you like it better if you go to this type of grocery store rather than that type of grocery store. And if you sit back and really analyze your own thought, it's not an inherently superior choice. It's just the one you prefer. It's just the one you like going to better or the, or the brand you like better. Or maybe you like the prices better or whatever, right? Bias. Human beings are biased beings. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Which, of course, I am deliberately tying this into the episode because this episode is all about bias and how an interesting take they have on that. But I'll, I'll get more into that in just a second. So, um, <laughs> this is a this is an O'Brien episode, as I mentioned earlier. Their desire to bring some of the secondary and tertiary characters more to the forefront, definitely in favor of it. And I do like how O'Brien starts getting more screen time, especially as of this episode. Um, there's this bit where, uh, you know, yes, he served with Maxwell, and then he greets the 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 Cardassians. Troy was sent out with specific orders to keep an eye on any of the crew who might have significant negative feelings towards the Cardassians. What I love most about it is as as they're leaving, she just turns and gives O'Brien a look. And he's just like, he doesn't say anything, but you can just see that, what? I'm fine. It's all good. It's a nice way to kind of foreshadow where this is going to go. Because, again, it's not like O'Brien is spitting venom at Cardassians. It's more complex than that, which I think is one of the things I like about his bias. So then we cut to Golmaset. Now, this is actually interesting. If you pay attention to the details, you can see a lot of the bits and pieces that would eventually be fleshed out into Cardassian culture in this very episode. Towards the beginning, Golmaset mentions how incredulous he is at the idea that the Enterprise would help the Cardassians to go after a Federation ship. That's ludicrous! Why would you go after your own ship? Right? Again, this is something that will become a very significant aspect of Cardassian culture. Uh, I've talked about this many times before. Cardassian culture is all about family, but to explain that more, it's all about grouping. You've got your family, you've got your unit, which is like your whatever you're, you're loyal to, your, your group, uh, you know, like the military or the, the obsidian order or whatever. And then you've got your entire, your, your, your clan, your tribe, and that would be the Cardassians as a whole. And you're loyal to these things in that order, going down the list. So the very idea that someone would betray some of their own clan is just kind of like, really? Okay. And you can kind of see the seeds of that being sown in this episode. So, there's actually a really nice bit in this episode. Uh, the, the guy who directed this episode, I don't even remember his name right now, I can look it up, but he's only directed like six episodes of Star Trek ever. Some good stuff. He, uh, it's Chip Chalmers, I want to say. Hang on, let me look it up before I say that definitively. Yep, Chip Chalmers, I was right. He has a, interesting, a couple interesting tidbits that he does. And one of my favorite things he does is, there's this bit where... It's like, oh my god, we found the phoenix. Now, in just about any other Star Trek episode, what would have happened is the camera, the view screen for us, the audience, would follow the bridge crew up to the bridge as they go deal with the crisis. Instead, the camera follows O'Brien. And they're the Cardassians, who are just like, well, we're off duty now. I like that. It kind of helps to emphasize that while the main plot is certainly relevant, this is still very much an O'Brien episode. This is about the down-to-earth perspective on the large-scale events that are happening. Almost every aspect of this episode is shown through the lens of O'Brien, with, with very few exceptions to that. And it's, it's a really nice touch, in my opinion. Helps to humanize otherwise heavy political war events. So then the, the Cardassians try to make small talk. And what I love most is they start talking by transporters. A very Cardassian thing to do. Okay, well, this is a transporter chief. Uh, clearly, he likes transporters. Let's try talking to him about transporters. Hi! Hi! Um, I would love to talk to you about transporters. And he says, well, I'll have to clear that with the commander. 
Oh, okay. Um, we were about to go to 10 forward to, to relax a bit. Would you like to join us? And O'Brien just snaps at him. Now, obviously, he does it in a usual O'Brien fashion, because O'Brien is a very affable, friendly kind of a guy. But for O'Brien, for him to snap that much, you can tell how much this is bothering him. I also love this part of the episode. Now, this episode was written by several people, and Jerry Taylor was also personally involved in putting her touches on this. I don't know who to praise here, but Taylor herself has mentioned several times how hard she worked to add to the human element, specifically of O'Brien and Maxwell. And I'd like to at least credit her this, because this is the kind of stuff she is legitimately good at. I like the perspective that, for once... The alien, who we've never met before, remember, this is the first introduction of the Cardassians. The alien is the friendly one who's trying to reach out a hand to friendship, and the human is the biased one who's trying to smack it away. Now, I know that sounds strange to say that, because, you know, the, the logical reaction would be, well, duh, of course he is. But if you remember this era of Star Trek, remember, we're still kind of getting out of the era of the Roddenberry box being king, and the idea that a human could have that kind of prejudice was basically unheard of. Now, again, I don't think it's that O'Brien hates Cardassians. I think he is more complex than that, as I will talk about again in just a second. But I like that they're at least willing to broach the topic, that there might be a flawed human. In fact, two flawed humans throughout the course of this episode. Anyways, so then it cuts to a great scene between Keiko and O'Brien. And O'Brien's offering her some you know, casserole, <laughs> which looks terrible. <laughs> Probably tastes good. I've noticed that certain types of, like, mashed-together food always looks terrible but tastes awesome, at least if it's well-cooked. I wonder if he cooked it or replicated it. Anyways, so they're talking, and I want you to follow Keiko's face during that scene, if you happen to be watching this before or after this rumination. Because, well, she's obviously distracted by the food a little bit. She looks legitimately concerned at O'Brien as he insists that, oh, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong here. You know, there's, there's no issues. There's no problem. I don't, I don't hate them. Everything's cool. It's just, yeah, whatever. And he insists that there's nothing wrong. There's even this bit, why should anyone feel the way they feel? War's over. And he even has this exact wording, I feel fine. And anybody who knows anything about human nature knows, I feel fine or I am fine is code word for everything's wrong. So then there's this really good scene construction. They found the phoenix. The Phoenix is chasing after a, a, a transport vessel, which can't really defend itself. There are Cardassian ships nearby. The Carda Gul Masset, by the way, in some ancillary works, ancillary works, they've actually said that Moset is literally Dukat's cousin. I wrote to help explain this. I find that funny. Anyways, um, you know, it's like, well, listen, we have Cardassian ships in the area. We could deal with this. No, no, I'm not going to give away Federation secrets to Cardassian military. Then they get closer, and it gets to the point where it's like, okay. And Picard very deliberately and very grimly decides to go ahead and give the information, knowing that it might lead to the destruction of a Starfleet vessel. And taking that action knowingly. That says a lot, and it's a very powerful scene. And the best part, I know this sounds strange, is that there's no fancy special effects for the battle. I know that sounds so strange to say, but this impressed me even as a kid. 
Now, don't mistake me. I like seeing a good space battle as much as the next person. I loved Return of the Jedi, if, if for nothing else, because of the Battle of Endor uh, when I was a kid, uh, to, to clarify. And I still like a good space battle these days. You know, DS9 would obviously have some pretty good space battles. Uh, it's one of the things I still appreciate about Wrath of Khan is the fact that the, the submarine battles that they have going on are actually very tense and well-constructed. But there was something special about the idea that they're basically watching a battle from a distance. They could have shown it, if they had the effects budget, of course. But instead what we get is a cold, emotionless narration by Data over a map. And it gets across that wonderful, detached, powerless feeling of being so far from the actual battle that you can't actually do anything to impact it. And not only is that obviously what Picard and the rest of the crew are feeling, even Goldman said is clearly shocked at what happens, but we, the audience, get some of that impression. It reminds me of some of the better spy-slash-CIA-slash-thriller you know, movies of, of the late 80s and 90s and early aughts, in that there would be these scenes where you're watching a satellite. Like I'm sure you can think of some off the top of your head, where you're watching a satellite view, and you're, you've given the orders, and now everyone's just kind of watching the battle unfold on the satellite as they're, as they're watching the ground level, knowing that the orders they have given had led to this effect, and they're all just, there's just this kind of moment of, you know, nothing else we could do at this point, right? It adds an extra layer of tension to the scene, which I think was very, very apt and very powerful, especially since we, the audience at this point, don't really know what's going on with Maxwell. We haven't heard his side of things yet. All we know is that he was attacked by a Cardassian ship, which had him at its advantage. He then managed to destroy that ship. I sometimes wonder if that was a Galar. By the way, this is the first time we see Galars. Yay, I like Galars. And then he destroys the, the transport vessel. And then Goldman said is just like, okay. Whew. How long? And then Picard, how long will it take us to intercept? At our current speed of warp four, my first thought, why are they going so slow? Increase to warp 9. Well, that's why they're going so slow, so we can have the dramatic moment of crank the engines up. Because all the way up till TNG, and especially within recent uh, episodes, going back as far as the late Season 3, warp 9 has been code for, no really, crank it. So, it kind of helps. O'Brien, throughout the entire episode, constantly argues he has no bias. And I like that because it gets across the impression that O'Brien is either in denial about it, or well, doesn't like to admit that truth about himself, right? I, I've admitted this before on camera. I have a bit of gamer pride. You know, I, I like to be good at video games. I've been playing video games since I was three. So I do have that problem, that flaw in my character. But I will admit it actually took me a lot longer than I'd like to confess to really be able to own up to that, to acknowledge that part of me. It was always there. I was the kid who would be like, well, you know, oh, man, I fought this one boss in Mega Man 5 and it was really hard. And one other kid in school would be like, oh, man, that boss is totally easy. And that would bother me because it meant I was less, you know, it was the pride issue, right? I was like, oh, okay. So I, I understand, at least personally, that it takes a while to acknowledge these kind of flaws in ourselves, especially when it comes to our character makeup. And so O'Brien argues, you know, it's not... It's not you I hate, Cardassian. I hate what I became. Because O'Brien then delivers an absolutely amazing speech. He talks to Darrow, or Darrow. And by the way, quick aside, you notice they call it Kanar. Later on, this will become Kanar. But I just, I just kind of like that because, you know, Kanar was actually invented here in The Wounded. But anyways. Um, so O'Brien gives this, this thing, and Darrow mentions it was a horrible mistake that they thought this was a military launch point rather than just a defenseless settlement. Now, I believe Darrow when he says that, but what I wonder is, 
Was that an actual mistake, or did one of the many organizations within the Cardassian Union decide to just kind of sweep over that in order to take it for whatever purpose? It wouldn't be above the Obsidian Order to push for something like that, and it certainly wouldn't be above the Union itself. I mean, remember, the Union by this point has been pillaging and destroying the Bajorans for decades. So, not exactly out of bounds for the military, right? Anyways, O'Brien gives... He just does a wonderful retelling of how he was a, he was attacked. Two Cardassians come in, and he stuns one of them. And notice how he says that. Because despite the fact that he was a soldier on a battlefield fighting an enemy that was attacking him, his weapons were still set to stun. That says a lot about O'Brien's mentality. Probably honestly says a lot about Starfleet at this point in history, but really mostly says a lot about O'Brien. Because he didn't want to kill them. It was then someone tossed him a phaser and without thinking, and he describes with the perfect amount of just almost detached horror what it was like to watch a living being vanish into ash right in front of him. It's the first time he ever killed someone, more or less by accident. And he's bothered by it. He is bothered by having to kill an aggressive force that he was at war with in a battle while it was attacking him. That is a great moment, and it gives a huge amount of characterization to O'Brien and why this has been bothering him so much. And he tells him, I don't hate you. I hate what I became because of you. Now, that is still a bias, but you can see how it's more than just Cardi suck, right? You can see how those wounds still bother him. You can see how there's scars that are basically still visible in his psyche as a result of what he had to go through. I sometimes like to think that the reason he petitioned for transfer to the Enterprise-D, keep in mind that at that point in time, technically the, the conflicts would have still been going on with the Cardassians, is because he just wanted to get away from that. Because he could have kept serving on the front lines, and he, w- he just noped right out of there. Go ahead and put me on one of those explorer vessels. And O'Brien had a hell of a service record, so him getting on the Enterprise-D, well, I could see that happening. <sighs> Anyways... <clears throat> So then Tell, or Tella, I don't remember how they pronounce it. I don't, think, I don't actually think they pronounce it in the episode. He's the other, the third Cardassian. He's actually played by Marco Rodriguez. And I remember when I first saw this, like, that guy looks really familiar. He played the fake, uh, back in uh, Arsenal of Freedom, he played the, the fake captain, who was actually the real captain. You get my point, the one who's trying to deceive Riker. Anyways, so he comes in and he's like, oh, I was, I was just looking at their computers. I, I didn't mean anything. I'm so sorry, please. And I mentioned that. I get the really strong impression that he was actually under orders from Gulma said. There's nothing really to indicate that other than the way the two interact with each other and how shocked he seems at Maset basically dressing him down in front of the bridge crew. But I like to think that he was sent there on orders because it's a very Cardassian thing to do. You are expendable. The state is what matters, right? And that once again kind of showcases how that mentality of the state mattering more than the individual kind of got written into Cardassian culture in the future. So, anywho. (laughs) Um, They finally catch up with Maxwell. Maxwell beams on board. And notice Maxwell is, is nice, affable, friendly. You can kind of see how this is someone who... This really helps to add dynamics to the episode because up until this point we haven't even met this guy and we know he has been attacking you know defenseless outpost, mostly defenseless transport and wiped out a Cardassian warship. That's all we really know about him. It's like oh my god he's gone crazy and then he's just hey, 
Everything's fine. What? What I love most about his confrontation with Picard is that both sides are right. And, well, that leads to the dilemma, doesn't it? Now, what I love as well about that is Maxwell constantly insists, based on what is basically supposition, his, his findings. He says, this place was here under these circumstances. It was getting regular, repeated transports. It's not like he didn't do his research on the matter, is what I'm trying to say. It's not like he just saw a Cardassian outpost and said, it's military! No, he saw where it was positioned. He saw the kind of defenses it had. He saw the kind of regular uh, income and influx of troops it had, or excuse me, transports it had. He saw what was going on with the other transports and how they were blocking shields, as we find out later. He probably already knew this. He looked at the evidence in front of him and decided, based on that evidence, that this was what was going on. And as we find out by the end, he was, in fact, correct about this. He didn't contact Starfleet. This is where he was wrong. He didn't put in his findings. He didn't call in for any of this. So this is one of the reasons why this, this episode escalates so badly is because he goes off on his own authority to do what he feels needs to be done about this. This is because Maxwell is also biased. Because he is also someone who has a grudge against the Cardassians. And to be blunt, I don't blame him for that any more than I blame Greymane for being against Sylvanas, for example. But that still means that what he was doing was wrong. It's just understandably wrong, just like Greymane. Make sense? So, his push here, his attempt to try and take things into a, take matters into his own hands, is the kind of thing that basically nearly caused a war, a renewed war, and a war that, as was mentioned by the Admiral right at the beginning, and thanks to the fact that this is not too long after Best of Both Worlds, we know, is a war the Federation just can't really deal with right now. If this, if this was a war situation, let's go back to that 4X example. You know what would happen right now? The Federation would go to the Klingons with their hat in hand. I don't have my hat. It's over in the closet. I'm just be like, could you please fight this war for us, please? Now, the Klingons might have acquiesced to that because the Klingons have no love of the Cardassians. But that would be it because Starfleet couldn't really fight a full-fledged war right now. They just don't have the capacity. They're still rebuilding from getting the ever-living crap stomped out of them. So you could see how Picard's perspective is also accurate. And Picard is so reasonable throughout the entire meeting. Like, you could tell Picard is basically asking for proof. Did you do any scans? Do you have any evidence? What are your intelligence sources? And he's just asking quietly, politely, almost urgently, give me something concrete. Give me something to use. Picard, for all of his, his moral stance, is ultimately someone who is lawful good. Someone who will do the best thing he can by using the system or going through the system rather than bypassing it uh, like, say, uh, Cisco would do, by ignoring it completely like Kirk would do, or by being written incorrectly, or excuse me, inconsistently every episode like Janeway would. Whoops. <laughs> so, Picard wants ammo. He wants legal ammo. He wants power that he could take to politically push the Cardassians on this matter. It is worth noting that Picard is, as we'll find out in the next couple of seasons, is one of the biggest proponents of politically pushing the Cardassians and, of course, as a consequence, getting them the hell off Bajor. Other captains, other leaders would have just tried to do something. Maxwell would have just charged into Bajor and started shooting up the Cardis. I bet the Bajorans would have loved him for it. But that's not Picard's intent or style. And again, I'm not saying he's right. Just that that's how he does things. So Picard is like, please give me something. And Maxwell has nothing other than supposition, which is just not enough. 
So Picard finally loses his temper and finally lets the steel into his tone at the end of the meeting after having failed to get anything concrete out of Maxwell and finally says, I'm going to let you fly your own ship back home, but that's where we're going. This is over. So then Maxwell, and you can just see the mindset, Maxwell veers off to go after another transport. It's like, here, yes, I found proof. Look, you wanted proof? Here it is. Go board the ship. As Picard says later, if he had boarded that ship, well, that would have been war. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but actually in real life history, boarding the, the ship of, an, of, a sovereign, of another sovereign nation without proper cause, provocation, already being in a state of war, or political granting, like basically if, if you know, we, we tried to board a Russian ship and the Russians did not let us do that, that is literally an act of war. <laughs> and has been, historically speaking. So you can kind of see the dilemma here. It's like, okay, well, we can't board. And so Picard slams down on Maxwell as hard as he can, but he also desperately doesn't want to shoot at him. And I like that, not just because of the whole loyalty thing, but I like to think that Picard really doesn't want to take out Maxwell because he does know in his heart of hearts that Maxwell is right. And so not only would it be morally unacceptable to do that, though he's willing to do it if he has to, but that's another ship and crew that they could use if the fight does come. I gave my opinion very strongly earlier, and I reiterate it here. As much as Maxwell was wrong, he also did something that, in my opinion, was very right. I think that because of his actions in this episode, he actually pushed back Cardassian renewed effort against the Federation and helped to lead to the eventual political conciliation that it ended up with the episode's uh, chain of command, which led eventually to Deep Space Nine. That was just my take on it, of course. I don't know if that's actually true or not. There's a really, really beautiful scene. Uh, O'Brien has to beam over. Note how he can't beam through the shields, except under very specific circumstances. I just point that out because, once again, it's a plot point. Anyways, um, Maxwell and O'Brien have just a great scene together. It's quiet. The two just start reminiscing. You, could, you just get the feeling of old war veterans, who are basically the only ones really left of the old crew. And... <sighs> And they start singing that song. They actually sang it. Both actors actually sang it themselves. And uh, and it's just perfectly showcases just how messed up this whole situation is. Because that's the real beauty of the wounded. This is a very complex situation. Right? Each variable in this equation has a great deal of depth to it. And each of those variables is counteracting with each other in ways that makes the whole thing basically... There's no good answer here. There's no right answer here. And Maxwell just says the simplest thing he possibly can. I'm not going to win this one, am I? That's all he has to say. And O'Brien's just like, no, sir. Because O'Brien, of course, he's honest with him. So Maxwell then confines himself to custody. They take the ship back. And then Golmaset is like, yes, well, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to posture for a little bit more and out of one. And Picard is like, you know what? He was right. And he just lays into him. He, he just sits there. And, of course, this is why I say this is complex, because Picard knows with near total certainty that Maxwell was right, that this was a renewed effort to militarizing the Union in this sector, to try and push the Federation once again. And he lays out all the pieces as they've been portrayed throughout the course of the episode, and he just dumps them all into one thing, saying, so yeah, Maxwell was right. And, and Golmaset says, well, why, why did you do anything then? Because I think the piece is sufficiently valuable for both of us 
that it shouldn't be jeopardized. And that's pretty much it. And, of course, he was also under orders. We will be watching you. Now, what's interesting about that is that will also now become a recurrent trend. Technically, Section 31 already existed at this point in history, in character, because we know it existed as early as Enterprise. But I like to think that Starfleet Intelligence and Section 31 started focusing a lot more on the Cardassians as a direct response to these events. And as a consequence, once again, helped push things as the way they would eventually go. If it's not obvious, I really, really like this episode. This was a great one and definitely one of the VHS favorites. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.